Hey everyone, you're tuned into episode two of the North Pole Hoops Canadian Podcast. What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me on another episode of the North Pole Hoops Canadian Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce. Coming up on the show today, we discuss the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, also known as March Madness, from the Canadian perspective. We touch on Canadian players that could potentially be in the tournament, the value of being a three- to four-year guy, and the value that March Madness can have on a player's draft stock. Join me on the podcast today, we have Elias Spate, who is the President National Director of Recruiting at North Pole Hoops. And we also have Jason Tom, who is the Commissioner of the National Prep Association. What's going on, fellas? We got the triangle offense going on here, getting in the groove. (laughs) Strong start. (laughs) Strong. Let's go. Are we excited for March Madness? I would say so, man. I would say so. This is a a nutty point, I think, in, in, in every basketball season. All the seasons are winding down, but I mean the allure around the NCAA is a big one, and the fact that there's so many Canadians year in year out who are participating in it takes it to a whole nother level. So yeah, I am. I'm definitely excited. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it's changed for me as I've gotten older, as you open your eyes to everything that goes on revolving around it, and you know, I think I think a lot of the hype and hoopla kind of is a little overblown for me, and I and I find myself looking for different things. I, I like looking for those stories of guys who, you know, maybe aren't looking for the one big game to get their name out there and are looking for, you know, maybe like the seniors who are finishing off their four years and looking for those great stories. Those are the things that really speak to me now mm-hmm. as, a, as, an, as an older person. Yeah, the crazy thing about March Madness for me is you just, there's always going to be that one Cinderella team that comes out of nowhere and then... One of those guys on that team stock just goes through the roof and they end up getting drafted. That's, to me, the best thing about the March Madness. You just never know who's going to come out of it. So I appreciate you guys jumping on. For today's episode, I really wanted to touch on the Canadians within uh, that are potentially going to be March Madness, but just in general. Who are the top Canadians? Um, and then some topics around how specifically some Canadians have leveraged March Madness, like I talked about, to raise their draft stock. So let's start there, Jason. So when you look at March Madness in the past, you know, you you think of names like uh, Ignis, Brzezikis, you have uh, Nick Stauskas, who have done well on the big stage at March Madness, and then as a result been drafted, their stock went way up. So when you look at March Madness, and specifically from a Canadian perspective, what kind of impact do you see that having, specifically this year? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Nick Stauskas, and that's the one that jumps out in my mind. And I think because at that time I was covering him for uh, the Score Television Network back in the day, and that was the one that really, you know, blew up, especially when it came to that draft stock of of showing, you know, what he could do to the NBA level execs, and and obviously, you know, getting drafted very high. Um, it's amazing to see what that has done. Uh, another guy that jumps to my mind, and, and it didn't have to do with draft stock because he didn't get drafted, was Brady Heslin when he went off and became like a household name. And that was exciting for me 
because that was still in the early going where, oh, Canadians can play basketball, and here's this kid out here. I think he dropped 11 threes in a game and, you know, broke a record. And, and how, how exciting that was to see. And back then, again, it was, it was still fairly new to have Canadians blowing up on that level. And, and I also remember my most earliest moment was Gonzaga playing Syracuse in a game that I believe there were seven Canadians on rosters at that point, including Ball Ball. Are we talking about like the 80s here? What, what are you <laughs> Early, this is Andy Routen's days, Robert Sacre days. Oh, okay, okay. Um, 2000s. Chris Joseph days. Yep, yep. And I remember that game, we'll have to tag all these guys on the Twitter handles, but I remember that game as the high watermark of seven Canadians playing in one game. And I think on the floor we had five at one point. And at that point, I was one of the only media members covering Canadian basketball. And everyone was kind of like patting me on the back. Like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, good job that you're co- We do play basketball. So it's amazing to see how much it's changed from way back then to now. And where back then it was like, oh, Canadians can play basketball. To now it's like, okay, who's going to jump onto a draft board because of that? Yeah, yeah. And I think that... You know, this year, if if a guy like you know, you know, he's my main man. So, if a guy like AJ Lawson can help South Carolina get in, I think he's a guy who whose draft stock explodes. And for all you know, we talked about this on a previous podcast. Like you can wait, you can wait and, and do a third year for a guy like him. Mm-hmm. But for immediate, you're looking at Andrew Nemhard. You're looking at Isaiah Mike at SMU. I think those guys are of the elite caliber Canadians that are looking to get drafted and, and could be in the tournament. Um, you know, with, with SMU, they're they're always among the top, or they have been climbing towards the top tier of the American Athletic Conference with Cincinnati and Houston. I think he's a very intriguing one, and he's kind of on the low, but I know that the NBA teams have been doing their homework. I've actually spoke to a couple of teams who have been doing their homework on Isaiah Mike. You're looking at a 6'7", six, 6'8", six, for hybrid forward. Uh, he can put it on the deck and create. Um, got good peripherals to see where his guys are at. Um, he's finished strong at the rim, very athletic. So I, th- I think a guy like that, who's under the radar, is who who really picks up. Mm-hmm. And what did like those guys specifically, like you mentioned, like an Isaiah Mike, um, and some of these other guys, because these guys that you're mentioning are they're not at top programs. They're they're at that mid major level where they really got to win that conference tournament to get in for the most part, right? So when you look at what those guys can individually do for their teams to help them take that next step forward, what do you think they need to do? I mean, you're, I think between your regular season average and, and, and the postseason, so coming into the playoffs and coming into the, in, into, into the madness, essentially, you got to bump up everything by three to four points, um, you know, two to three rebounds. Everything's got to bump up. There's another gear that you chime into because everything's on the line. Your season's on the line. You're playing for a contract. Um, in in you know in Isaiah's case, he's got a baby now, so he's playing for another life. Um, and I think that those are all things that are driving forces. Um, then you're putting your team on the map. Uh, that's another big one, right? It's it's everything is nationally televised. Your people are betting on it, so there's a lot more on the line. Not that not that the players care for that kind of stuff, but there's just a lot, a lot of hoopla around it. Mm-hmm. And when you when you look at that, like a lot of these guys that we're talking about here, none of these guys are gonna be one and done, right? So when you look at 
three and four year guys that are going to look to take that jump potentially to the to the next level. What do you see them needing to do? So when you look at a three to four year guy versus a one year guy like a like an R.J. Barrett, for example, how do you see that transition now? Because we don't have a one and done guy from a Canadian perspective this year. Well, and we and we have to realize, and I think I think. We do, but I think a lot of the players and a lot of maybe young basketball fans need to realize those one-and-done Canadians are very rare. As we move along, we, we may see a couple more, but, I mean, Andrew Wiggins, R.J. Barrett, like, those are, those are unique uh, players in unique situations. Generally speaking, our Canadians are going to be three- and four-year guys, and they're going to be guys who, you know, have winning qualities, Right. Um, they don't, and, and I think that's where we have to focus on with our young players coming out is, you know, I, I think of a guy, and I know, I know this is a, a team that's most likely not going to be in March Madness, but like a Deshaun Henry, who we know is going down there to be a three- or four-year guy at Bradley, but to see the steady progression season to season is so exciting to me, and that, again, is the realistic pathway for our Canadian players. Guys that are going to put in the work, get better every year, put on that added muscle, the added strength, add to their game, and then by the time they're done, maybe they get a look at the NBA. Is it a draft? It may not even be a draft, but we've seen time and time again here at home with the Raptors, and just generally speaking, my work in the G League with the Raptors 905, you see players that are three or four year guys that come out of programs that are winners. They have the things that coaches need to be good basketball players. And the more players that we send south of the border to correct fits that have that winning perspective and those winning qualities, that is is what we need to focus on. And we need our young kids to understand that. Yeah, and that's, I think that's something that's changed, the perception Absolutely. of that, right? Like, look at a guy like uh, Jalen Brunson, right? Look at a guy like Fred Van Vliet. These are all four-year guys played very well, went deep in the tournament, and they were able to help teams right out of the gates, right? So there is that switch happening, right, where these kids don't need to be concerned of the fact that, oh, I came to this university, I thought maybe I could be a one-and-done or a two, two-year guy. No, you go four years, and you can still you can still reach that next level. And there's guys, there's NBA-level guys, like high-level all-stars that went four years at a school that nobody had heard of, but now it's on the map. Like, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, so if, I mean, you, if you look at draft boards, it's usually, for the past couple of years, it's been second-rounders yeah. who have had... Or for, if you look at the last decade, it's been a lot of second rounders who have actually had the most longevity in their careers. And I was talking, I was actually talking to Oregon about that today. We were on a call today, and we were talking about the guys who have stuck it through. Dylan Brooks stuck it through for three years. He built his stock in his second year, yeah. but he stuck it through for another one. People are looking right now, and I get questions all the time about, hey, what do you think of Addison Patterson? You know, do you think it was the right fit for him? Dude, he's a freshman. Yeah. Played 25 games. He's played 25 games and he's still learning a system. He's been the man his whole life in high school. Now he's getting an opportunity to play with uh, Chris Duarte, who's balling for Oregon, and they've had uh, they, they've had a high level, high degree of success with their JUCO kids. You know, if you look at Chris Boucher, if you look at Duarte now, you look at other guys that they've recruited who have went on to play to the league. You're playing behind a more experienced guy. So we don't need to be rushing our guys to get to the draft. These more experienced guys that build IQ, build patience, know how to play with another alpha or two, 
those are the guys who have the long-term contracts, whether it's league or not. And the other thing that sticks out to me that I don't think the players think about is when you are a three- or four-year guy, you have not only had more experience on the floor, you've had that much more practice time against. And if you're in a program where there are more three- and four-year guys, guess what? You're playing against guys with a better basketball IQ. You're going to learn more from them. I understand that we have the schools that are one-and-done factories, and there is a place for that. But those, if you're going there and you're not the highest of elite players, you're not going to get as much out of that program as you would if it were a program that guys are used to going three or four years. I think that's the change that we're going to see. Yeah, I think that my last point on that is some of those three and four, the majority of those three and four-year guys that are coming into the NBA are contributors they're they're role players they can come in right away and help yeah and help a winning team so you touched on Oregon let's just talk about Oregon in general and how they've really been the pioneer to putting Canada basketball on the map so to speak they've been the one like it was always Oregon and maybe one other school yeah Texas was the other one in the early going but again after after um you know Corey Joseph Tristan Thompson Mike Abongo type thing Baylor is well. Baylor, Baylor okay yeah, yeah. Ba- hey, Baylor Bears are they got a they're winning on a winning streak right now and they've been they've been steamrolling through competition uh all, all season long the Baylor Bears have definitely got their ground in, in, in Canada. And they've been on so many Canadians over the last couple of seasons as They well, were a right? finalist, a yeah. finalist in the run for uh, Zach Eady, 7-3. Um, Gonzaga was another big one. Uh, they've been really good with developing international talent in general, um, from Serbia, from Ukraine, from all over the place. Uh, so Gonzaga would be another one of those teams. Absolutely. Yeah, so what do you, like? what are your thoughts on that, Jason, just in general, when you look at Let's add Gonzaga to that. Let's, like you said, Texas um, and Baylor. Those programs in general and how they've seen the value and what Canadians can bring to the table. Right. But what that has done now yeah. has forced all the other schools to get on board. And, and that's what we're seeing from the scouting service side, from our, our coaches coming up to Canada. And I know Elias is constantly in communication with these guys. Like, more often than not, if you're coming to Canada to see a player, you're stopping through the NPH offices as well. And I think in the conversations I've had and just generally speaking with the players that I've seen, they want guys that value the work ethic. They want guys who are willing to put in that time and that energy and, you know, value the long-term fit. And I, and I think, generally speaking, it may not have started that way with Canadians, but we've seen that over the last five years. Yeah, I think in the beginning, you know, especially if you're talking about teams that were borderline entering entering the dance, you, you're not just picking up a guy because it's cool to recruit Canada. You need a difference maker. So it doesn't matter where he's from. They'll go to Belize. They'll go to Spain. They'll go to they'll go wherever they need to go to get talent. The one thing I wanted, to, I wanted to point out that another thing that I've learned recently that I hadn't really thought about, but is coming out of Canada, you need to have a unique skill set or a unique body type. Because you've said a million times, because we, we are a guard-heavy country. There are so many 6-1 and under solid guards in this country that aren't going to get a look in the NCAA because they're a 6-1 point guard. Am I right? No, I'm bang on with that, man. And, and that goes back to the conversation of, you know, the guys who are legitimately Division One, the upper echelon top 50 guys versus the guys who are, you know, bona fide. Mm-hmm. So let's touch on 
Um, so we're, we're talking on the court, like March Madness coming. What about off the court? So, Elias, you're you're involved outside of the game, right? And, and what's going on with some of those teams where they get knocked out early or just some of that off court. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, talk about that. So, so there's a lot that is not paid attention to because, again, of all the attention that's directed at the dance. And during that time, usually if you haven't made it that far, you're either you got another year or two and you're on the recruiting trail Right, you're trying to gather as much information, watch as much film as possible, connect with as many people as the phone, or you're exiting and you're about to get fired. And usually when a, a, a staff knows that they're about to, let, when they know that they're getting let go, the players quickly find out. And what happens when the players find out, you got the transfer talk. So then the players start reaching back out and they start you know, looking for situations. What's a stable situation that I can get myself into? And I think, JT, you had mentioned this off air a little bit with this new potential transfer rule that's going to help. Yeah, I mean, so I guess it's in front of the Division One Council right now that first-time transfers won't have to sit out an academic year to join their new school. And Canadians have got caught in this very often and probably not more than Americans it just seems like that to us because we're more involved with a lot of the Canadians but we've seen a lot of guys get stuck with this or they've had to sit out that year but you know two great examples now sorry to get back to the transfer rule is that good is that bad one way to look at it is you know the players need to it's a free market they need to be able to go you know if, if they've made the wrong decision to be able to you know get that one time to get a different one a, a, a different decision but the other way to look at it is a program that is developing a player, putting everything into him for one year, then is going to lose that player to a bigger school by bringing them in. Is there a limit per team on how many transfers they can get? I'm sure that's something that would have to come across as well. But when we talk about transfers, we've seen a lot of Canadians transfer, sometimes bad advice going to the wrong spot. Other times, how much of a positive that can be taking that year off to work on their body in order to get ready to the, for the next level. And there's been a number of guys that have been successful with that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and most recently, just look at a player like Nate Darling. Nova Scotia's pride and joy this year, you know. Last year, um, last year it was Lindell Wigginton, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? This, this year, by the way, Scotia. Scotia, we talk about guard heavy, we talk about elite level guards. There's a lot of them coming out of there. Right now, the high school season, just a side note here, um, Diggs is absolutely killing it for Oakville Prep. High scoring. Back to Nate Darling here. Nate Darling, you're looking at a 6-6, you know, uh, played at UAB last uh, two years ago. Now is at Delaware. He's in a conference that's suitable to his style of play. He puts up major numbers. He's a high-volume guy when he's, when he's being allowed to play within his role. So now he jumps into a situation where he's thriving. Guess what? All of a sudden now we're getting calls about him as a potential guy for workouts. Not necessarily getting drafted, but you're in talks to go work out for teams. And that's, you know, agents are reaching out, teams are reaching out just to get background info. And I think, you know, that goes back to the initial conversation of what does Mar March Madness do for a player's stock. This is leading into it, of course, but the entire season and the accumulation of everything that he's done, I think is going to earn him some recognition. And he's a perfect example of what I'm talking about with Canadian players. Now, he's an elite 
I don't want to use it. He's a very high-level shooter, right? Well, he's but an elite shooter for sure. Okay, and he's a world champion. To, and he's a world champion. I was just about to say I didn't want to steal the scout's thunder, but that's where I was going with it. Is you're probably getting those calls because now you're looking down the resume mm-hmm. of a Nate Darling, who on the surface, oh yeah, you know, tall guy who can shoot, like good for him, can play a couple different positions, good for him. But no, he's a winner. He was on that uh, world championship team with R.J. Barrett, Abu Kajab, all these uh, great players, Daniil Djuricic, and these are all guys who are now succeeding wherever they're playing. So winning breeds winning, but he has that winning mentality. He's been around winners. Um, he won national championship as well uh, here in Canada on the U-17 Nova Scotia squad. So, I mean, this is a guy who, when he gets to this next level, coaches don't have to teach him the little things on how to win games. He already knows that stuff. And that's what these coaches love about these high-level Canadians. So is the reason, for the most part, Canadians are transferring, and maybe it is at a higher rate than the U.S., we don't know. But let's say it is. Is the reason because they're Canadian, they don't have the type of connections that, let's say, a kid in the U.S. who's... Dad has a connection with ex coacher. He just knows, hey, this is this will probably be a better fit for you. Versus some coach reaches out to you know a Nate Darling and says, hey, I want to give you a full ride scholarship. You know, you're going to be my guy, and he just goes over there. I don't. I don't think it matters where you're from at all. Uh, I think if you're a guy who's producing at another school, like for example, let's go with uh, Marcus Carr. Marcus Carr at Pitt came in as a freshman. You know, was it was advised to go there? Those guys got fired, he, so he's let go. He's forced to sit out a redshirt year, even though um, he should have been able to play based off of other transfers being able to play uh, with the waiver that was put in. Anyways, that's a, that's another side note. But this year at Minnesota, he is thriving tremendously, and it has nothing to do with where you're from. If you're producing at that level, if you're putting up numbers as a freshman, there's going to be places at other schools or other conferences, Power 5 conferences, that are going to still take notice. And that goes the same for if you're playing in the MAC or the WAC or, or wherever else. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think to get back to your point, I think it would also have to do with how many offers you have at that time. A lot of these guys only have one offer and then get to that next level, show what they can do, and now more, you know, more interest comes along, so then that's where the transfer idea happens. Um, but this is why they have to be so extremely careful, because when you're, when you're transferring a bunch, you, there's no like, stability. You're not learning one system. You're not, it's, it's actually not great for your development, because the more that you transfer, you're meeting new people, having to deal with new people, new characters, new egos. Uh, new coaching styles, uh, people that may or may not trust your game necessarily. Uh, Elijah Long kind of went through that, right? Like he absolutely annihilated it as a as a freshman, and he was someone that was slept on and then built his stock in the second year. Ends up at Texas. Coach Shaka Smart had a bunch of guards. He doesn't get to play in his natural position, and now he's at UNLV, averaging I don't know just over ten over ten points a game. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's so critical that that these, these decisions are, are really, uh, number one, like information-based and, and really looked at from a, you, you gotta look at full scope yeah. of the operation. How long is the coach gonna be there on contract? Um, what type of role do they have? Am I a need or am I a want? 
Uh, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So let's let's touch on so as a Canadian player, I'm let's say I'm I'm in the tournament. How do I keep my focus on the team versus I got to show out here because if I don't, I'm not going to get where I need to go. And I think we see that, and that's you know I, I think the trap of this game of basketball because uh, we see it at the high school level all the time, right? The guys, a coach is in the stands. And it's you know it's time to, to showcase a particular player, um, and and I mean that's a very fine line. And I think a lot of the times I looked at the coaching staff for that, particularly the head coach, to be able to kind of you know uh, teach that sort of level. Um, and it's just at least for me, the game of basketball is so much so on social media, like one on one, one player, but. The game of basketball is is everything about team. The team can't be successful unless everybody's on the same page and everybody's on a string. And I think in March Madness, in the end, like if your team wins, you get more than one or two opportunities to show out. So if you're just playing the one game, you put up 30, but you lose by 20, what are they really going to remember, especially in that first-round game? Yeah, yeah. And, you, and take a player like uh, John Morant. Who was, who was Murray State before him? But his team success actually helped the success of his of his fellow teammates as well. Everybody got to be seen. He didn't win on his own. He was the human highlight reel, but he didn't win as, on his own. So team success breeds that individual success as well. I think, you know, to, to, to alleviate the stress and the drama of all the attention that you're getting and to remain completely focused at the task at hand, you got to focus on winning. It's just straight up winning. What got you to this point and, and stay the course? That's a good point. So I think this, this is a good uh, time to wrap. Uh, but I think the overarching theme here is when you look at March Madness, it's all about number one, you got to get there, right? And in order to get there, you really need to focus in on, on the team, right? Number two, we have the Canadians, we have a lot of good guys, but none of these guys are going to be one and done this year, right? So they need to focus in on looking ahead and saying, hey, I may be a three or four year guy. Not rushing it. Not rushing it. Because the reality is if you look at, like I mentioned, uh, Fred Van Vliet and and some of these other guys, they've gone on to be very successful and been four year guys. And I think one thing that we lose is like enjoy the journey. Enjoy the process. Like I can't think of one guy who I know who went U Sports or NCAA that looked back and was like, Man, I'm so glad I got those that year of college out of the way or those two years of college out of the way. Like that's the best time of your life. You are a star on that school campus. Enjoy that. Take that opportunity. Take it all in. Look at all that you may never play in front of that many fans ever again. Enjoy that moment because you're never gonna be able to capture that in a bottle. Well said. Appreciate you jumping on the podcast, fellas. Listeners, make sure you like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time.